welcome to Don't Drink the Tea, Agatha Christie podcast, where we analyze her books one by one. I'm Josh. I'm Charlotte. And I'm reporting live from the Agatha Christie wall. The wall home. of Christie. I, you guys can't see me, but I'll take a picture right now. Oh, I left my phone in it. <laughs> the wall of Agatha Christie behind me. I will be sharing that on social because it's a beautiful thing. Um, it has all of the uh, Agatha Christie first editions and facsimiles. I don't have one for the book that we're talking about today. The book we're talking about today is Taken at the Flood. Slash Otherwise known as There is a Tide. There is a Tide. Now, because of those two titles, I wanted to play a little game. You know me, I'm always wanting to play little games. I think <laughs> that this is the only Christie title where the both of us could maybe go either way on the titles, right? Like, do you like both? Yeah. And I feel like that's the only one I feel like that on. So I thought we would go through them and see if there's any others where we're like, yeah. And usually I think we always would prefer the original title. So so you're saying that both of these titles are good, whereas what? most alternate titles, there's one good one and one lame one. And it's almost always the original is the good and the alternate is bad. Right. Let's let's give it a shot. Okay. The ones the ones that I know off the top of my head are I mean looking at this list. We have Lord Edgware dies and 13 at dinner. 13 at dinner is best. Oh, that's a friend. you already broke my rule with the first one you chose the alternate. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> okay. Which one right. of those do you like best? I think I prefer Lord Edgware dies. Really? Like, I, I'm, I'm good with 13 at dinner, but it's too close to the 13 problems. Okay. And then we have, I mean, this one, you, can, you don't even need to ask. Murder on the Orient Express or, or Murder on the Calais Coach. Yeah. Right. Obviously, um, Orient Express. <laughs> why didn't they ask Evans the boomerang clue? Yeah. Those are both okay, but they don't. They just work on two totally different levels. And the boomerang clue, I think we talked about this, makes really very little sense with the story. Yeah. And what I mean, it's hard to not call it why didn't they ask Evans, or that all seems kind of pointless. <laughs> yeah. And that you would think if you didn't know it, that it sounds like a really clunky title, but for some reason it just it it rolls. You know, why did they ask Evans? You just say it and it's it doesn't sound odd. It's just, that's what it is. <laughs> and I don't think that would be the case. I mean, like, if it was the alternate title, I think, like, what? Um, three-act tragedy, murder in three acts. Yeah, I like three-act tragedy. Yeah, I think three-act tragedy, without a doubt. That's a really good title. Death in the clouds, death in the air. Mm, clouds. Yeah, I agree. Clouds is so much better. Um, let's see. Murder is easy, easy to kill. Oh, uh, again, they're both okay. I prefer murder is easy, but that just, it just, it sounds, I don't know. It's, it sounds like a, it's just more intriguing, I guess. It's easy to kill also feels like it could mean that you are, it is easy to kill you. Like it was someone that it was <laughs> very difficult to murder. 
like a but yeah like a personal insult but like murder is easy is like the the title of a uh of a do-it-yourself book or yeah. something <laughs> five little pigs murder in retrospect uh i'm not a big fan of either one of those to be honest well i prefer five little pigs but murder in retrospect is the other one where i think i could go either way yeah they just sound like you know obscure um episode titles to some weird police drama <laughs> yeah from the 90s right i can see that um uh they do it with mirrors murder with mirrors yeah i, I know we've talked about this before that it's always the like the american releases that they have to put murder or oh, kill yeah. in there somewhere so yeah they do with mirrors is it's just better i think yeah the most interesting one i think after the funeral and funerals are fatal hmm i like after the funeral because it doesn't really you don't know what happened after the funeral like you want to know what it's more intriguing but funerals are fatal is is interesting because of course you're going there because someone has died but that's also opening it up that okay there's there's the the being at the funeral was a bad idea <laughs> I, I don't know that's a tough one for me i think after the funeral is much classier and funerals are yes. fatal sounds a little more like dime store detective story yeah 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 it does this one's a no-brainer hickory dickory dock hickory dickory death Ooh. <laughs> those are the, uh, oh, okay. those are the major ones there there's more but the only other i mean because you have the mirror cracked or the mirror cracked from side to side i think i prefer the mirror cracked because from right. side to side is is a little long but i guess i was i was thinking ahead of time this was the only one that i liked both but there are a few others for me that it does work, but usually for me, it's like a, uh, I don't, well, there's 450 from Paddington and what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. And like, yeah. I'm always like, why would you call it the second one? And usually <laughs> it feels cheap to have the one where they throw murder or death in it. Right. And this is one where I think both of them work. And it's interesting that our, her original title was There is a Tide, but there was a book being published by the same publisher at the time called There Is a Time. And they thought it would be too similar. It's one letter. So, oh. so it was changed to Taken at the Flood, which I think is an excellent title because that's just another part from Julia, the same ju passage from Julia. It's the same quote. It's it's yeah. the same line. Yeah. But There Is a Tide, they still use that in the U.S. because that was a U.K. book. So it's interesting, mm -hmm. actually, that it was like kind of a, a reverse. Their, her original title was used as an alternate title, whereas she changed it to Taken at the Flood. I could go either way. They're both really cool. But again, I think Taken at the Flood is, it feels classier. I like the past tense. Of it's it. stronger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more intriguing that you want to know, okay, what was taken at the yeah. flood? Yeah. But exactly. there is a tide is uh, is still good. And it is kind of interesting that she could glean two snappy um, mm -hmm. catches like that from the same passage. Yeah, from like the same line sentence. Yeah, so she did a lot with nursery rhymes and also a lot with Shakespeare. But I guess that was kind of typical. Everybody learned Shakespeare and everybody read it. So 
is more familiar with it. Right. And I think she gleaned better titles from Shakespeare than she did nursery rhymes. Yeah. But um, I think she had a good eye for what sounded or a good ear, excuse me, for what yeah. sounded good. Like, because you could get bogged down in mm-hmm. in all of the Shakespeare dialogue, but that she could pick out these things that that she saw these little tiny pieces out of the hole. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is the strongest of all of those title wise. Um and it's not one, I think, and we talked a little bit about this before, which I, I try to stop myself from saying, because it's like asking the audience to be privy to some conversation they couldn't have been. Right. But, they uh, don't know. They don't know that right. we already talked about this. I think it's to just remind each other that we know that we right. talked about That's it before. Like... just repeating myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that this Losing is a your title, memory. Yeah. A title that it seems like no one talks about at all. Like, no, Unless you're right. You're a core fan. Right, because I even looked, tried to look up a tiny bit of trivia. I mean, I know you have more resources than I do, but um, just looking, usually Agatha Christie official website has a neat little did you know fun fact about each title. And this one was like nothing. <laughs> yeah, even what I looked up with like all of the like textbooks that I have, there's not a whole lot about it like it was planned concurrently with a couple others she even thought about giving it the title uh cover her eyes or cover yeah cover her eyes like um like the same thing from sleeping murder um because they were kind of written around the same time taken at the flood and sleeping murder which sleep murder was published you know decades later but was right right but she was playing around with that title like will that work and it was going to be applied to one of the deaths um, but this title works so much better, yeah. Um, given the themes of the book, um, but I didn't get a whole lot about like you know interesting things about it. It was well reviewed, but it like didn't people weren't going nuts about it. Even like in the the uh, book, uh, Mark Aldridge, the Agatha Christie's Poirot, he kind of called it like one of the lesser uh Poirot cases like less interesting Mm -hmm. so and I don't think that that's universal among her like experts because it seemed like John Curran was a big fan but it just seems like one that never has gotten out of just it's kind of like blurred into this little middle period yeah I think that there are probably you know so many other titles that you could list that even people who weren't casual fans would would know mm-hmm. but then if you were to just come out with there is a tide or taking it at the, at the flood like you said you'd have to be pretty diehard to know mm-hmm. that that was even one of her titles let alone what it was about and i just wonder if it you know just weird circumstances if it had to do with timing because there's definitely in my opinion i i have i have issues with the 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 whole thing you know petty issues but issues <laughs> as we'll talk about um but i feel like there are better known and better received books of hers that have more weaknesses for sure i don't think this is a weak book at all because what was no oh, i you know no memory what was one of the last ones that we did yeah surrounding that was it. oh what, what uh, it was like like labors of hercules and the hollow were the previous borrows yeah that i feel like they they are this one is stronger in a lot of ways 
But yeah, slips through the cracks, which is kind of fun because it gives you something to discover and make yeah. you feel <laughs> make you feel love proud. A, love a deep cut of anything. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad you said that because that remind I I'm annoyed because when I did that research, I found a fact that I wanted to talk about and then I immediately forgot it. But um so at the time, you know, everybody wanted Poirot stories to be serialized, but evidently at this time, when she wanted to put Taken at the Flood in the magazines to be serialized, they kind of were like, Oh, we don't really want the stories with your big detective characters anymore. So they wanted a uh, taken at the flood story with Poirot edited out so she actually was rewriting taken rewriting taken at the flood without him in it which you know mm -hmm. he's a it's not like a light Poirot book he's significant in it in, um, it's in the full second half though because this is book one and book two is how it's yeah, structured and right. he's he's at the very very beginning in the what's it at the prologue mm -hmm. And then he doesn't appear at all in the first half. And then, but then he is very central in this. Yeah, in the but the enemy leads it from there, right? And so she had written, rewritten a bunch of it. I, I don't know, maybe all of it. And then eventually the the deal fell through and it didn't end up getting published. So I don't know where that version is, if it even exists, but they had a note from her to her, I think, agent where she was like, I'm very mad about this. This was very hard to write. Like it was a pain in the butt. Because she did enjoy taking Poirot <laughs> out of things when it was her choice. I don't think she liked it when it was their idea. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because she did. We're kind of at a point where she, you know, she had an on again, off again relationship with mm -hmm. him, right? Like where she enjoyed writing to them. And then she's like, no, I'm more than that. So now you have, uh, that's really funny. You have a, a opportunity where like, oh no, let's, you know, write something different, write a standalone. Yeah. And she's like, oh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that that kind of like, because she's written three in a row, three Poirot's in a row, but that uh, shows from her next projects that we don't get another Poirot until 1952 with Mrs. McGinty's dead. So that's four years, which doesn't sound like a lot for most authors, but given how much Christy wrote, there's one, two, three, four, five, six books in between. So six books that are not Poirot. And the next Poirot, because maybe she was wow. like, she maybe she felt some freedom or maybe she was like, yeah, maybe he's not doing too well in magazines. And she got the majority of her money actually from the magazines because a lot of the book stuff was taxed so much with international uh, income. But oh, magazines was the real bread and butter because of the serialization. People would pay a lot for that. So I don't know if it was her being a savvy businesswoman or if she was just happy to part ways uh, with him for a little bit. But yeah, we yeah. did. A big break from Poirot after this book. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was the most interesting fact. So, Charlotte, why no, don't that's you a good one? Yeah, why don't you give a little blurb about Taken at the Flood for the audience? Okay, and I gave this more thought than usual because it's a very difficult mm -hmm. story to sum up, and I'm not good at summing things up. So I gave it to you. <laughs> it's totally. It's totally Zach's strong suit, and he is not with us this evening. <laughs> so that that makes it really hard so oh it's so convoluted it's really hard so there is a dysfunctional family at at its core not the most dysfunctional that she's ever written but they're not they're not doing great right <laughs> and the patriarch of that family um has married an extremely young wife she's like 23 or something and he's in his 50s or 60s and he's rich and kind of supports 
his relatives, which is a theme she's visited a lot. Um, but oddly, none of that is in the book at all. <laughs> this is all backstory to where we open and we open on the fact that he's dead. He died in an air raid mm-hmm. and his young wife survived, but he didn't get the, ch- they'd only been married like two weeks. He didn't get the chance to change his will. And he had always promised all of his um, nieces and nephews and sons and their families um, had always promised them that he would take care of them and had promised to put that in writing and he didn't get the chance. So now his young widow is uh, has control of his money um, and she is influenced by her brother um, and they're both Irish, which is interesting. That's not something Christy did a lot with. And also having the, I guess she did have the brother-sister dynamic occasionally, like uh, moving finger, I guess, mm-hmm. is the first thing that comes to mind. But not something that I feel like she does a lot with. What no, do you think? And nothing like, yeah, nothing like this either, where it's uh, like a power dynamic rather right. than just for comedic relief. Right. And so the the whole um the whole drama of the whole thing is because there's no um there's no body until well into like what the second act <laughs> really. Yeah, it's like a hundred pages at least. Yeah, so the, the drama behind it is that she was married before. Rosaline is the is the widow's name. Um she she was married before, um, very briefly to someone who um was like a an adventurer and had died in Africa um and so the the family all latch on to this really thin hope that maybe there's this tiny possibility that maybe her first husband never died and it becomes it becomes an obsession for you as a reader really which I love the way Christy did that that it's like is he well, no, of course not. And you get you get so much of that in the book. Like, yeah, of course, n- characters being like, no, he's dead. Let's just move on. Like, but maybe you don't know because <laughs> his family is so and not even just like a question of greed. All of the of the family are in desperate need of money. This is uh, this is post-war. So right after World War Two, everyone's yeah. suffering financially and emotionally, too, which is a big theme in the book. And so they all really need this cash but that rosaline is not what's standing in the way it's her brother david hunter who is in complete control and so that's the conflict that you get is that the whole family hates the brother um and by extension hates rosaline as well yeah exactly really well said i don't know if that was a sum up or a ramble that's great because it is hard to to pack that all in but like what you said the murder doesn't happen well in it but it feels like you know someone's gonna die because it's just so it's just so uh ripe for death but the mystery of just like them trying to to discredit her uh marriage and get their money back is is so interesting because you see their desperation but i like what you point out that because we just read Crooked House. That was the last one we did. And even though this is written before Crooked House, that was one we did out of order. Because I, I couldn't help but compare the two. You know, an older guy, same, and same. a young woman. Yeah. <laughs> but what's so different about this one is that this, 
while that one has like such an air of privilege and the family is so spoiled by relying on him uh like what you said this is a post-war book everyone is like they they need the money like they've gotten into trouble because of some bad business practices while things were really tight and they they like have like downsized with like servants and there's all of these like rations that they're dealing with post-war and it's so real too and she doesn't like lay it on thick but like it's it's running through everything and they're like no we need this money and she is standing in our way we have to find it somehow and yeah and I I knew I I started reading this many 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 years ago and realized that I never finished it but I had seen the um the television version which we'll get to later um and so I knew kind of what was happening but I think if I was reading this without any uh prior knowledge whatsoever I even asked myself halfway through like who would I bet on was going to be the victim and it was really hard because you think, oh, okay, obviously it's Rosaline. And they're like, well, no, not really, because it wasn't, they even, there's one character um, who even asks her for money and she's willing to give it, but uh, her brother won't allow it. So it's like, oh, okay, well, obviously it has to be the brother then. But there's never a moment where there's any um, hints dropped or clues given that it's going to go in that direction you would think in a classic mystery story or even a classic Christie that okay he's going to be you always feel like you can guess in the first few pages like oh that's the one that's going to go <laughs> like arlena marshall in e right. evil under the sun you're like okay obviously yeah but this one i was like i have no idea <laughs> Mm -hmm. And you don't because the victim isn't introduced until like two pages before he's killed. Yeah, exactly. So we have a couple characters that are sort of like leading things in. And the family is the Claude family um, that are the ones that are like up against her. And so we have a couple of them like there's um, Francis, who is married to uh, she married to Jeremy and the lawyer right yeah and there's he's a lawyer one, and a doctor and the lawyer has made some really bad business practices of spending a client's money and so she is one that is like she's like there's this really nice scene of him telling her like breaking down and revealing it and her just being very practical about it like nope we're gonna fix this we're gonna swallow our i pride. love francis yeah she was great she's such a go. great character we're just we're have to go ask Rosaline for money. And there's this idea of like, of course, Rosaline should give us money. Like she has to know that this is what Gordon, the husband, would have wanted. And there's no question because Rosaline would be like, oh, yes, of course. How much do you need? But the brother is, you know, made out to be evil. And then when you get some scenes with him, he's like harsh and rough. But you kind of understand a little bit of it where he's like, I'm protecting you from this family because mm -hmm. obviously they all want you gone and you it's a really cool dynamic between all three because he is but he is so protective over her yeah and uh but anyway i got distracted from what i was talking about which was the clothes yeah, so there's there's francis who's married to the, the lawyer and then there's the doctor uh who's yeah. i always his wife is the the one who's like um i hear voices but like yeah. she's a very comic character yeah because she originally she goes to paro in the first and she's like i heard from a spirit and he knows 
Robert Underhay isn't dead. The Poirot's like, this is a really convoluted way for the spirits to tell you something. But she's like... That conversation, by the way, in the very beginning, is so fun. Yeah. Because it was... everything between the two of them because she would say something outlandish and he would like correct her under his breath is so well done yeah she's like really getting on his nerves like she's like you know who knows if robert underhay is dead africa's a really crazy country and he's like continent but yeah and uh (laughs) but she but immediately like poirot knows because she's making it out to be like oh we need to know that this like guy's alive everybody thinks he's dead but poirot was like yeah because you want that money that's the whole point and uh so we you have her you have that other aunt. and the problem with this story that i've always said whenever i pick it up is there's one too many aunts in it one too many yeah. aunts because yep. i'm always like because there's three i think and they're all aunts to someone kathy right because they're yeah there's so there's the the doctor and his wife so that's lionel and kathy who you were just talking about and then yeah. there's the jeremy there's francis and... and jeremy and then there is adela who is just by herself and she doesn't have a husband but she has her daughter lynn her grown daughter lynn who is kind of a central character Um, right and lynn is kind of the important part about adela right but you do kind of start to read over it and be like wait who are we talking about now (laughs) yeah and because lynn is engaged to now is it rowley or roly in the in in the the movie movie, they they said roly it will it's roland but it yep. was like his nickname, but it's spelled R-O-W-L-E-Y. I which read that like Rowley, but I think that I'm thinking of that because of like an American pronunciation because Rowley sounds like Rowley Polioli. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Rowley, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, who is like, a, he's a farmer, he's a clode, and he's like a farmer, rough and tumble guy. And he's like uh, the close to engaged, kind of like an understanding that they're going to get married to Lynn, who is the mm-hmm. daughter of the aunt you just said who i can never adela who is who is it (laughs) right and her whole thing is that like she desperately needs money because like she lives in this kind of rundown house and has had to make all these concessions again because of the war um i don't think it's stated or i don't remember that it's stated why she you know that like she i don't know if she's a widow or what but like they're that house keeps needs keeps needing work she can't get a job um a lot of stuff so that's her desperate need for money is just to really keep existing not even like you said not even trying to be comfortable but just like you know we have holes in our roof and we can't afford to fix any of this and i really like how christy does that here like in contrast with crooked house because i would almost expect it to be written in the order that we've read it in but it is the other way around but it's like you i think the crooked house characters are much more hateable because they they they're spoiled they just they want the wealth that's it they want yeah. to continue having their i don't work lifestyle but for these characters like the way they're going about it is is unethical but it's it's not greed it's like right you know, this was our money and it, it is and we had a right to it and he would have given us this money and it just did not work yeah. out because nobody expected him to die but that's how the yeah. war is right and, and the much more real yes and i don't feel and you can you know tell me what you think too i don't feel like she really 
slaps you in the face with any of that. I feel like she was just telling the story of how rough it really was. And she doesn't always touch on that. Like sometimes, like you said, just it's always about, okay, it's a rich family that's untouched and, and, you know, we're putting this big problem into their lives because they don't have any problems. Uh, But this was like a, a gritty kind of genuine feel to everywhere you looked, everywhere you went, you were faced with the consequences of this whole country and this whole culture trying to like, get themselves back to where they were. And that I felt was an allegory that stood out a lot is that the characters were just like, like, no, let's just, okay, it was terrible. Let's just forget this all happened and go back to the way things were. And you can't, (laughs) none of them can, none of like Lynn comes back from, from Africa and, you know, she is a changed person or she feels like she's a changed person and she can't just pick up where she left off no one can everybody's life has changed Mm. their whole society had changed and they're just that constantly being faced with even the little things like having to stand in line to get um normal provisions you couldn't just go to the store and buy something you had to wait in line you had to use your ration book and that was just put in there so effortlessly Yes. That you kind of felt like, oh, wow, this was this was rough. And she doesn't always present that. I don't think she kind of glosses over that sometimes. Not not in a bad way, but it just this felt a little bit more real. Yeah, I think this is one of her most. I agree that it's not heavy handed in the slightest, um, but I think this is one of her most fixed in time books because yeah. some of them you could trade it. You could swap them around and maybe the later books, it's very clear that it's 60s 70s but she's not necessarily comfortable in those decades but for this mm-hmm. one it, it it is the most like yeah this is right after the war and for that reason like ignoring anything that happens in the book i think it's one of her better written just like prose wise setting and tone like yeah. where she's very economical like she always is but uh it's you have such a clear vision of what life is like at this given time which can be hard to do usually because we're looking in at this one family like this one class like right. really wealthy people or, or you know the servants or anything like that but this is kind of like this is how it was for most people right this moment of time yeah that's true and that is it's funny that you say that because it is kind of an insular cast there's only the only outsiders really are Poirot in the second half and the outsiders are Rosaline and David and that's yeah. con- they're constantly reminded of that that they are the outsiders but but as far as like oh the village people and there's one there's the lady who runs the um the inn she's important but other than that you don't have a lot of side characters like no. you said besides one too many ants yeah. <laughs> aunts <laughs> and I I was struck by like the character of Roly Polioli Roly um <laughs> <laughs> Even the fact that he's a farmer and like talks a lot about that. Cause like you don't get that character much in Christie besides like maybe the gardener with bad English that gets killed, like, you know, in the second yeah. act. Like it's a unique character for, for her and him and Lynn, his girlfriend, are a lot of the action is is told through them. Mm-hmm. Especially in the first half. Like, yeah, I, I completely agree. He's, Roly is a very interesting character. So strong, so well-written. You felt like he was very definitely someone that you had met or someone that you knew. Um, not, uh, uncomplicated feels like a really 
poorer word choice because his storyline is actually pretty interesting <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest like he has a he has a crazy arc mm-hmm. um but yeah you don't she i think that's one of the things that she really tricked you but yeah. you didn't feel like you were being tricked Agreed. just roly as a person <laughs> And, and really interesting uh, interplay between characters because Roly and Lynn both are the characters that kind of connect to Rosaline and David. Roly connects to Rosaline for a little bit and he's like, is she that bad? Do I kind of just feel sorry for her? And Lynn sort of starts to get obsessed with how like unknowable and dangerous David is mm-hmm. as opposed to how knowable and safe Roly is right and it's just kind of like a, ooh the bad boy like there's not a whole lot of depth to it necessarily but the yeah. interesting part of it is how much it complicates it because there's these two characters who are obviously invested in the family getting their wealth back but then they're like but we actually kind of like these people and it's not really necessarily fair that they're made out to be these villains just because they got out lucky because of this bombing well, i mean she still lost her husband and yeah. all and uh and and rosaline is a character who it, she is like super flighty super timid uh and she is a little unknowable because there's seems to always be a barrier between us and her david mm-hmm. is always intervening and when you get her by herself she seems kind and generous and then david yeah. intervenes and he's and he stops it and then we get these scenes with just her and david where he is just oppressing her so much and she's yeah. saying She's saying she feels wrong about something and he's just like, ah, blah, blah, blah. No, don't, don't talk about it. But yeah. we get to see those scenes and, and like see her personality get like shoved into a corner. Yeah. Um, one of the notes that I wrote down is I feel like this is, is David Hunter's novel. I feel like that was mm-hmm. maybe one of the reasons she wrote the whole thing. Cause usually you can tell, you know, what was Christy playing with? Like, okay, she wanted to play with a train <laughs> or she wanted to play with a locked room mystery or, mm-hmm. you know, where the narrator was the perpetrator or, you know, whatever it was, the things that she wanted to ex- explore. There was usually a, a, a crystal, a grain there of something. And I feel like that was David Hunter. I feel like that he, as a character, challenged her. And she was like, how can I make him awful? Yeah. But also like you said, kind of relatable. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was the kind of the whole reason for the story, even though yeah. the, uh, the, um, the twist I think is very good. Yes. Um, I, I have a couple problems with the ending just, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I guess you say when we're talking about the ending. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to set up the depth before we like because we we get to unpack so much before we even get to who dies right um, <laughs> a man shows up to the village going by the name of enoch arden and i didn't know that name but like everybody in the book is like oh enoch arden we get the significance of that we're all right up on our tennyson yeah and <laughs> making tennyson, the rest of us feel stupid <laughs> yeah literally everyone on the planet is immediately like I guess like, you know, Tennyson was like their Taylor Swift at the time. And they were like, <laughs> we've all heard that poem. Like just it's everywhere right now. It'd be like if he was named with Rum Tum Tugger. And um, he shows up to the inn and uh, he he like writes to Rosaline 
and is like, hey, I have information about your husband. And they're freaking out. And you can tell they're guilty about something. And she's starting to get the idea, well, maybe they know Robert Underhay isn't dead. And he also contacts the clothes because obviously he wants like whoever's the highest bidder. Um, and well, no, that was an accident. That was the the innkeeper oh, yeah, lady right, right. The maid like was listened, to listened yeah. into their conversation and then called Rolly and was like, ah, you need to know you're about right. this. <laughs> and I like that complication of it too because yes. you're right, that's not how it went. And um, so that guy. Uh, he does talk to David and, and he talks to Rowley and and he's like making these threats and he is the guy that is is found dead right uh, the next day and that is when is Poirot even involved in that yet we get Superintendent Spence and I think that's his first this is his first book because he does reappear later on oh okay um and, and the next Poirot book actually Mrs. McGinty's Dead is his next book oh because uh, he's not that particularly of a strong character but he's like this is like the small town village mm-hmm. i mean detective so we get him for a little bit and poirot actually gets reintroduced uh because it, so the book starts with um just some huge exposition from a character named major porter about everything charlotte talked about at the beginning of like you know the bombing of the uh, initial husband even of the enoch arden thing and every time i read the book literally every time i'm like why would she choose to deliver the exposition this way it's like a major talking about it in a club and everybody's like including poirot like this guy is so boring and he never shuts up major porter right but the and i would think the same thing except for they're going through an air raid yes at the very beginning and he's like i went through an air raid once and everybody died which is so comforting but it's it is that also is a good testament to the time as Mm -hmm. well because it happened so much and this was in another um book that we we, i don't know if we we talked about it or no we didn't talk about on the last podcast was was green for danger which was set during the war and it talked about how after a while people just they were like oh it's another air raid you know i know we're supposed to go in the basement but it's so much work to go down there and so that was kind of the feeling about them being in this club was like well let me just tell you a story (laughs) and the interesting thing that i always like that she does is that that character comes back because they're like they're looking they're like we need to find out if this guy is is robert underhay rosaline identifies the body as not him she's like no that's not but i never met him but the clothes are like how do we really make sure? Yeah. And so Poirot's like, I know a guy. And <laughs> uh, it was that guy from the beginning. And I love how he's it reintroduced because it's like a, a character that I thought like, oh, this is just a character to deliver exposition. But then he shows up yeah. and he's like, oh, yeah. So he actually witnesses at the inquest that that was Robert uh, Underhay. Yeah, the, then, the, the guy who was blackmailing them, he was like, yeah. because he said, like, oh, I know under Hay. I know this guy. I know where he's staying. I know he's not doing well. I know he needs money. And even David Hunter was like, oh, yeah, it's you, isn't it? And he's like, mm, I'm yeah. not telling. Right. A <laughs> and friend then, of mine. Right. And then, <laughs> and then when he's killed, um, yeah, then this this major porter is like, yep, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> Hold and on then- a second. Charlotte is walking away. So I'm going to kill some time. Uh, So he testifies for this. Everything goes like 
up in uh up in the air now because he has identified him as under hay i just i'm gonna do a little further you just you just kept talking that's fine i had to get water i haven't got anywhere farther but then major porter is found dead next from an apparent suicide um and that really complicates things because they're like yeah really robert under hay and so that's like the two deaths that happen kind of like close together and yeah everything's heating up at that point and then the third death i think is the most interesting because the book actually finally gets back to where you expected it to be in the first place right (laughs) which is that rosaline actually dies um she's the third victim right or but it's it's unclear how she died. They believe it to be a suicide. Right. Or it, it seems to be a suicide, right? Yeah, because at one point uh the inspector is like, "Oh man, we've got we've got a murder and and two suicides." And Poirot's like, "No, you have an accident, a suicide and a murder." And he's like, "What?" <laughs> that is the the most brilliant thing of this book, I think nothing Um, is and that that sounds so cliche but nothing is as it seems but it genuinely literally you you just take everything that you take for granted as okay yeah i'm not even giving any mental energy to this because of course this is the way it is Mm -hmm. isn't (laughs) it's amazing but and um, this era because the the plot as interesting as it is it's it seems like a pretty conventional mystery but what christy does so brilliantly and so subtly that I think just like we said with Towards Zero recently that you could read this and not even think about what she's doing on like a meta level. But of course, when you read a murder mystery book, every death, you're just going to say, yes, that's a murder committed by the murderer. Right. Yeah. But she does such a good job where every single death is the exact opposite of what you as a reader would assume. Because the first death was genuinely an accident. And Major Porter's death, genuinely a suicide. So a suicide, a su- so the first one was uh, assumed to be murder, was an accident. Yeah. Assumed to be a murder made to look like a suicide, actually is a suicide. <laughs> and then uh, a suicide that is actually murder. Right. And yeah, which is crazy, but it and it sounds clunky to try to explain it, but although I think we're doing a very good job, but when you read it, it's <laughs> is just like, oh wow. And I that's one of the things that makes it feel really genuine because I think in real life you get a, a you know, real people who in investigate real murders have to get so much complication because a you know a mystery story or a tv show is going to strip it down to just the basics usually but this felt like it it could have happened this way in real life because you get people who lie for their own reasons and you get people who have their own thing going on that it's like okay you're not just a casual witness that you you, the even a casual witness has a backstory and a reason for their choices and so, yeah, it would be hard to investigate a real situation like that because things are not just cut and dried. Okay, here's motive, means, and opportunity. There you go. So yeah, much more it, than that. And it doesn't seem far-fetched. Yeah, it seems like this this could actually happen, especially with all of these people's drama that they have with each other. And and yeah, it's, it's not even as clunky as it sounds because it, it just explains so well. And it's like... 
it feels like a perfect uh what's the word i don't even it's like a perfect triangle that she she's everything is evenly distributed to be everything the opposite of what you expect and all those layers peeled away and then the people responsible for each thing the last that you would expect because you would never expect the characters to you would always expect the other characters to have committed the crime but she again does that you never would think you could have this many layers of the opposite of what you would expect and yeah and it all plays it all makes sense even the true identity of enoch arden slash robert underhay who's neither of those people but who he actually is and how he got to where he was makes perfect sense with the motivation of the characters that you've already met because it turns out that it's francis's brother mm-hmm. um that she paid him to come and do this to try to scare the um to scare rosalina david into parting with some yeah. money perfect made perfect sense from her as a character uh and and just all yeah all of the it's just so complicated but it works which how did she do that (laughs) and you would assume that it would be david or rosaline that side of the battle that would kill that guy but it's not even it is one of the clothes that did by accident it's roly who got in a fight with him and killed him by accident and then made it look like murder yeah which is crazy because and there's one point where they were because um David Hunter is trying to set up his alibi because he finds him dead. And he's like, oh man, because he was coming there to actually pay him the money and the inspector and everybody really is like, oh, okay, well that makes perfect sense. Obviously that gives him all the motive in the world. He, you didn't, and Poirot's like, no. And he even says, you can't have it both ways. Either he was going to pay this guy or he was going to kill him. And that just doesn't make any sense. So if he was making arrangements to pay him, that shows he did not have a motive to kill this guy. Right. And while the clothes do not benefit from Enoch Arden's death, the same thing, David Hunter would not have benefited from Rosaline's death. It wouldn't have made any sense for him to kill her. But he is the one that has killed her because Rosaline is not Rosaline. <laughs> and she just throws that at you yes. like in the at the end. What? Yeah, what? when during the raid, it, uh, the house you know exploded, and Rosaline did actually die. David Hunter needed her to still be a Claude. He still needed his inn to keep this money. And so it was the the maid. It was a servant, right? Yeah. And so we get their conversations throughout the whole book where they're together, and she's like, "What we're doing is wrong. I feel so guilty." And what you assume is. The fact that she was married previously and Robert Underhay is alive and you have no right. real reason to question that. You're like, oh, that that confirms that they've done the wrong thing when it's actually that she is because she keeps saying it's not our money. It's not our money. Right. Just so brilliant because you're just assuming it's the reason that's been delivered to you on a silver plate. When yeah. actually it's because she's not Rosaline and Rosaline is dead. So it does really belong to the clothes. It makes you question everything when you get to that point and you find out, which is, it, it is kind of thrown in there, but it, it's so central. It makes you want to go back and start all over and read it with a completely different lens. But you never, ever consider that for a second. So, so brilliant. <laughs> it is like, yeah, it is like the, of of her endings where it's like, you know, she did this thing, the huge twist that is 
a signature Christie twist. This one is never thought about because it's so hard to, you can't sum it up with one sentence like saying everyone did it. You yeah. just have to say it's the opposite of everything you expect, <laughs> but that does it zero justice because I think it has got to be of all crime genre. I feel confident in saying it has got to be the most example of it is the exact opposite of what you would expect yeah and even when you say it out loud and people who are listening to this like still even though we've kind of spoiled it for you still go and read the book because you're still gonna it's state it's all stated so plainly and you just have these preconceived ideas and no reason to question them whatsoever and she doesn't feed you that falsely she just lays it out there and you just pick it up you're like okay of course obviously all of this is just straightforward cards on the table no questions asked and then none of it <laughs> is is that at all so good yeah. so what are your um like trivial qualms what are your nitpicks about the book? okay i do have some do you have any very minor but i do have a yeah. few um so i i really like she has a a different type of um sum up denouement than she usually does which i liked a lot so it's just poirot and these three characters so it's roly lynn and david and they're all sitting at this table in roly's house with coffee and he's like all right i'm gonna set this all straight and that's a really cool way of doing it it keeps it very um intimate like the whole story is it keeps it very um special that you know it's not a huge room full of gather all the suspects you know that whole thing she doesn't do that at all but it does come at a price it's it feels very rushed to me mm -hmm. um all of the stuff that she does is necessary like you said there's no wasted uh words in this but it still felt like the end just kind of came a little too fast yeah um and she gives you a little too much that's why I feel like it has to be almost read twice. She gives you a bit too much to digest, even though it's all, you know, clever. It's a little too much to digest right at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and so that bothered me a little bit. And was like, eh, it, you know, kind of felt like a, a stumble right before the finish line. Mm -hmm. Again, not like a big thing that compromises the book. The thing that really, really bothered me because and this is we're, this is we're, we're talking the very end and by very end i mean the last three paragraphs of oh, the story yeah. is so lynn's whole thing through the whole book was that um you know she couldn't stand to be safe she can't stand she to boy. yeah and that was why she like thought she liked david um and so she goes to confront roly and this is before the sum up she goes to confront roly and and he like finally like just loses his temper he's been a very cool character through the whole thing and he's just he like grabs her by the throat and he's choking her and then poirot sums up he's like knock it off you know and then they have their Which whole is, like and it works for his kid i mean because it's he also that's the same thing he did with enoch garden where like you know he yeah, lost, he his, lost temper his temper and right. then accidentally killed him he punched yeah. him and he fell and hit his head Right, yeah. So him reacting like that isn't out of, of character. It's just and and Poirot showing up and being like, "All right, kids, everybody, just sit down. We're going to sort this yeah. out." Is very good. Um, and she even the way she wrote that, she was like, "This was such a bizarre situation," but he had like he held sway over the whole yeah. situation. But uh, so 
you find out you think through the whole thing you think david is responsible for everything bad that happens it turns out the only death he was guilty of was rosaline's um and so so he you know he's out of the picture and so lynn comes back to roly and she had but she was gonna you know break off their engagement and and go away and and she was like you know, now that you choked me, I really have respect for you. And it's like, it's so, it's so bad. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and I feel bad for whatever circumstances it made it that Christy was like, all right, either I'm tired. I, I need to get this out. Why she felt the need to sum it up that way is just, that's a terrible noise to make but that's the only it's so distasteful like on so many levels i'm not just saying oh you know it's a modern reader who didn't understand the times i don't mean it like that it just it doesn't work at all yeah it's bad and i think that is the most common complaint about the book it's not like you're alone in that um i do appreciate that it is super easy like it leaves a bad taste in your mouth for sure because it is the very last thing that happens um but there's kind of a, it kind of felt similar to me. And this goes way back to Man in the Brown Suit, where she's kind of adding like just a little bit of like, it's like, oh, it's this romantic element where it's like you want the danger. But like it's one step too far where it's like, okay, yeah, danger. Yeah, this is a little hot. But you're like, oh, no, this was this was scary bad. Like he tried to kill you. This is really really poor decision making yeah yeah like don't do it very bad go for david (laughs) go for the murderer um and this that that is bad yeah and and it is is like you said it does kind of leave a bad taste it's like you've had so much to enjoy and Mm -hmm. then it's it's like if you she would have just stopped even as sudden as the ending came if she and as rushed as it felt with Poirot doing the sum up with just the three of them, if it would have ended right there, it would have felt a little bit shock, a little bit jarring, but you would have been saved that like really poorly cooked dessert or whatever it was. Yeah. Just like, oh, <laughs> makes me feel like when they are printing these new editions of Christie that have like taken away some like slurs and things like that, like, you, can you guys just trim that just so we like don't have to think about it anymore? Because it's a shame <laughs> to me that I've heard some critics talk about it and they've been like, that's like one of the initial things, like, well, it has a crazy ending. And then I was thinking like, before I could remember what it was, I was like, was there something wrong with the solution? Which the solution is brilliant. It's mm-hmm. literally the ending of the book. Right. And- yeah. Which is, is hard. You have to say the very ending. It's like, you mean the, yeah. not the ending as in the last act or the sum right. up or the solution, but as in the last paragraph. <laughs> and it feels not fair. I mean, she wrote it, but it feels like not fair because it's just, it's so, um, it's, it doesn't go with the rest of the book. It's like, because it is, it's, I mean, it's not like it's out of character for this character. She is kind of like laying the steps for Lynn making this bad choice, but it's just like, it could be removed and there would be nothing missing. And, right. And, and you're right because her whole thing with like, because David is so controlling and, and abusive, really, he he's like emotionally manipulative and abusive. And mm-hmm. to, to feel like, okay, that, 
you got out of that like you got away from that situation and i I, like you said roly was his character he was losing his temper but it happened twice in the course of just the the of the book like it's not it's still bad decision making and it doesn't it wasn't necessary to complete anybody's storyline because like in um she's done this a couple times and i always like it when she does like the ending of death on the nile is that conversation between two guys in a pub and they're just talking yeah. about they're like oh um what was her name it just went out of my head lynette doyle the, the character yeah lynette they're like oh her oh she died in egypt oh that's mm-hmm. a shame you never yeah. know what's gonna happen like and that just kind of solidifies it as being real and that the story is over and that people's lives move on that was a, a um a classy way to sum it up yeah <laughs> anyway less than classy but those I, are the <laughs> those are the what, only things i have wrong with the the book however the oh yeah <laughs> the sushi version the television version on bbc so bad. Uh, <laughs> whenever so, you're ready to talk about that <laughs> it's so bad um yeah i was just gonna say my mine are you i mean i have a problem with that but i i just completely ignore it because i just don't I don't like that it's there. So I'm just kind of like, I'm not even going to have it in my assessment. Like I usually just forget about it as soon as I'm done. Um, One too many ants. I don't like, Yeah. like if she would have t- t- taken one and made Lynn, like the daughter of Francis or I guess she could be the daughter of Kathy, but <laughs> that would have been a little silly, but uh, yeah, just trimmed it down one. Per- it's weird for it to be one person extra, but it's just like, you already had the role of, of aunt phil but like i can't keep track of one more aunt blank um <laughs> that and then there's one part of the solution that has always bugged me which is of a, a character having a male character having to disguise himself as a woman to give himself an alibi and it doesn't it doesn't it, yeah it doesn't really it, work it doesn't gel with everything else because everything else is just so like beautifully simple and that i don't like that level of complication that we didn't necessarily need but those are really really minor like i feel like it has less flaws than something like what you just talked about like then death on the nile as a whole uh it's just that they 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 stick out more i think just because everything else is so well done yeah true true yeah Um, but yeah we could talk about the episode uh now which is like I, I honestly believe that it is it's not the worst because there is a way or one that is just abysmally bad but this yes. has got to be the second worst episode of the Poirot show there's worse yes. Christie Christie movies and shows um but this is just so bad and it's it's hard to believe that it's so bad because this book is just so it seems like it would be so easy to throw on the screen yeah yeah that's that's what i why i had read it and i was gonna say that before i had read it as my prediction for the third poirot movie and obviously i was wrong and i yeah and i'm not sure if that would have even worked out because it's a little more complicated than like an american block hollywood blockbuster can even handle now that i'm reading right. it this time yeah. but like it just seems like this feels cinematic in the way that it has mm-hmm. a really good hook and it has a really good ending. And it, the fact that the show was like, oh, well, we're going to tweak that. <laughs> because they did so much right. I mean, you know, it, it's the quintessential Poirot interpretation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there are some there are some majority strong episodes. They 
are very respectful of the source material and and all that um and there are some like uh you know that was unfortunate and then yeah there is one that is worse than this one but this one's definitely second best and and there's no real reason that i can find for any of the choices that they made right because we always both of us always say like we don't mind changes like sometimes they're necessary or sometimes they just make something different or more fun but these all of these changes are just bad yeah and 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 also the fact that they tried to keep all of the original source material and make changes Mm -hmm. that were bad changes but also still keep all the good stuff It, it it yeah yeah, so there they, are a few things that I like about it, to be honest. Um, but there are it's it's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was there anything that you like about the episode? Oh, not really. But the problem, the the big problem I have with this is the same thing I say about everything Christy related is when they have such a misunderstanding of the source material. Like they themselves don't understand what makes this so unique. Like that three three part ending. And one of the things that frustrated me the most, Riley like yelled at the screen, was <laughs> we actually see Major Porter kill himself. Like, it is like a patch of dialogue where somebody's saying, yeah, like, and Major Porter kill, and we're, we see it as they're saying it. So it kind of is like, it takes the drama out of it. He does it like in the middle of the club, and it's kind of like silly like because he has like blood spray on somebody's newspaper and they like look down on their newspaper but even regardless of that being stupid we as the reader watcher are not supposed to know major porter has actually killed himself we're Mm -hmm. supposed to think that this is the second murder and that's what's so brilliant about it because we automatically would have if you hadn't without a doubt shown us that he had killed himself like how stupid is that and then instead of it being like these characters who made some bad decisions and doing the opposite thing instead of just having david hunter be a really complicated character who ends up uh making the really selfish decision and the murder at the end they try to make him a super villain (laughs) because they've had to move the story from the 1940s like every poirot episode and this becomes a problem with the later is set in like 1936 so it can't be the raid it has to be like they say it's gas right Right. Yeah. It wasn't an air raid that it was a gas explosion, which was so unnecessary. And I understand now what you said about the timing, because that was one that was the we've already talked about that. That was this important central motivation of the whole cast and the the thing that this was just some freak accident. But then it turns out, yeah, that he He blew it up to play something dynamite. Yeah, with dynamite killed like five people. And then, like, you know, he has to, like, find the maid and be, like, and, and then there are all sorts of weird stuff they add to that, like, his oh, method of so getting much. her under control. It's unnecessary. And honestly, a lot of it feels like in this era of the show, they were trying to get more dark Poirot. Like, they wanted him to get angry because there's no reason yeah, for him to get angry. In this yeah, because he sums up with a whole, with the whole room of people, your typical and he's sum mad. up. Which, he's yeah, and, and he... <laughs> Yeah, and it was like it was a lot of stuff that also he had no way of knowing for one thing, and he oh, just he just yeah, kept he throwing things, and there was like, and, and you know, you you kill puppies. You basically yeah. was like, you know what? Uh, I, I like, felt like God could never forgive you, and He can forgive anyone. 
And it's like, I feel like they just, Poirot's really good at that. I mean, yeah. David Suchet is really good at that. Um, but like, but it was too reaction, melodramatic even for him. Then that reaction works in stories like Orient Express and, and things like that, where it's like, it's an insult to him. Like someone has yeah. fooled him. But in this one, it's like, it's so shoehorned in because in the book, he's like, this was a pretty neat little problem. This was kind of fun. And then yeah. the thing, he's like, you are scum. You and disgust me. And then David Hunter's like, oh yeah, well, there's dynamite in the room. And then everybody's like, what? I told you, I told you that I had thought of like the perfect uh um image of why I think the ending was so bad because it gets even worse. He's like, oh yep, I rigged this place up with dynamite. And he's standing there with a lighter, which is so dumb because everybody's like, oh, if he drops the lighter, it's like if he nothing's gonna happen it wasn't like the dynamite was on the floor in yeah. and then and then lynn gets up who like doesn't blink through the whole thing by the way mm-hmm. she gets up and she's like no david you won't do that because you love me uh-huh. put the lighter down it was so bad and it felt like it felt like the whole ending the last 10 minutes was written by a 12 year old boy and a 12 year old girl who the boy was like yeah and then we're gonna go <laughs> and everybody blows right. up and the girl's like yeah but then he doesn't do it because he like loves her and all that and it's gonna be like super cool and they're gonna be happy and then the boy's like yeah but dynamite right that's true. <laughs> that to me is what the ending feels like <laughs> and even like his reaction with the dynamite because he's saying like oh I, I put so much dynamite around here i don't even know how much it felt like kids like trying to one-up each other were like oh yeah well i have like punch power like well i have punch power times infinity well, yeah. I have punch power times two infinities. And Quaro is looking scared. And you're like, right. well, get a grip. He didn't have dynamite. He knew, yeah, like he knew every single thing that had happened up until that point. And he wouldn't be like, Poirot would be like, oh yeah, well, I showed up early and I took all your dynamite out. What do you think about that? And David Hunter is like, well, I came back after you did that and put all the dynamite back. Because there is no dynamite. Uh, like no, he, and there should never have been any but, dynamite. But Poirot should have known, like, well, A, when would you have gotten the chance to do that? And B, you didn't know that I was going to do this sum up. Like, you were just going to have this dynamite when I come in and say Rowley did everything. It was <laughs> really? the worst. It was the worst. And even, like, ignoring all of those problems, which are huge, the acting is, they really play everything up. It gets to be really cartoonish. Like, the characters that are are comic relief in the book, okay, they're still comic relief, and they're very exaggerated. But even the characters that are pretty serious, like, they're very, very melodramatic. And it doesn't make any sense. Like, they do so many things like this so well. It's such a, yeah, it is such a yo-yo. And it's a shame because, and that was another thing that was the only thing that was on the official Agatha Christie website about like facts about the book. It was like, it was made into, you know, it was in the Poirot series in 2006 or whatever. And it starred like all these several big names in, in, you know, British television. And those people did good. So like Francis, excellent character and she nails everything. Like she stays so true to form through the whole thing. And she's very good. Um, Rolly is okay. I think Not for bad. what he was given, he does a pretty good job. Um, and the Lynn drove me crazy. It was like they told her, okay, here's your direction. Just be Henrietta from the hollow. Not the character, the woman very, who played Henrietta. Very similar hollow. performance. It's like that's just and they and they put this whole dynamic that like 
Poirot was her goddaughter or something, and that was unnecessary and didn't work. That was shoehorned in. Um, but the there were some moments, and I and I I do think it's worth watching. Like, wh- but when you when you get to the sum up, just just stop unless you really want to have something. Unless you just love train wrecks, don't watch it. It it just felt like a bad episode of reality television. Not that there's any good episodes of reality television, but. There are some moments that are really splendidly acted, I thought. there's So there's one whole scene um, where Francis, who's very well played, comes to get... Like, they're having a, a party and everybody's there at this house, um, the whole family. And she gets Rosaline off by herself and asks her for money. And, of course, she gives it to her because she's a nice person. Well, she's trying to, like, sneak by and get away with it. And David Hunter is like, oh okay so what just happened in there and like forces her to explain everything in front of the whole family and it's really uncomfortable and i think so well played she did perfect like like francis did perfect the guy who played david hunter did it perfectly like the way that he acted and you felt like even though francis was a very strong character he had control of that whole situation even though he was a horrible bully it just worked and it was so well done and to waste that by just by just throwing it all in the trash is really frustrating and he does do a really good job when he's not expected to be car- a cartoonish villain like no, whenever because, he yeah, is- it gets ridiculous he even yeah. he loses is like these poor people had nothing to work with mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's it really bad i i think second worst i can't think of like because i can think of episodes that i'm not happy with uh, but usually they're like minor qualms. But I think, unless I'm forgetting one, that this has got to be the second worst <laughs> to Appointment with Death, which we've talked about on this, which yeah. is just like um, almost the worst Christie ever. It is unwatchable, really. Like, I, I can't watch it again. <laughs> and I've got Tim Curry in it. Yeah, I know. And that's another thing, too. So the guy who plays David Hunter is kind of obscure. Like, I couldn't find him on a lot of stuff. He wow. is in a marble um, that's really, really bad. And which one? <laughs> he's in They Do It With Mirrors, which is a horrible oh, yeah, episode yeah, yeah. anyway. It's really bad. And he yeah, has yeah. to play, again, he's not given much, but he has to play this moody American who, like, hates everything. And his name is Wally, which isn't his fault, but it just it's so bad and it's terrible so comparing those two performances this one is amazing but like you said when it gets near the end it gets... yeah <laughs> like sometimes i'm just doing something random and i think cut me cut my face because <laughs> he's got that irish accent and i just start laughing it's so bad because the only other ones that i really dislike from the show is like i really dislike evil under the sun the episode but it's like it's not it's just because of like really making really boring choices. Like it's not yeah. like it made and the Miss Marple series, which has more good episodes than you give it credit for. It's a repeat offender though. <laughs> it is definitely, it has several episodes that are as bad as this. Uh, and worse. it's rare. Like, Most of the Suchets are very good, but this, yeah, but the Suchets like at least usually have an, uh, an average, like, six out of ten stars but this one is like <laughs> lucky to have one and this is in season 10 which yeah, really well, gets me when, when i was looking at the episodes i thought the interesting thing was because we talked about this before babe being a like it's a season finale 
But guess what else is a season finale? Like appointment with death. Oh, they really didn't know how to close the season. They were like, let's really (laughs) leave people wanting less. And they did. And, and yeah, this, we've said this before that, like like we have to like it's canon like we we were not allowed to change our minds the big the big name ones they do really poorly like i mean death on the nile was was fairly good but But yeah um, roger ackroyd roger ackroyd uh ackroyd (laughs) murder on the orient express they were they oh that that one's in the top three of worst i think i think they they the approach usually and death on the nile is the exception because that is such an excellent episode is one of the best is that when they get to these they're like we have to do something different because of what we're expected to do and that's which is dumb because what they do on death on the nile is they follow it really closely and they do such a good job but like Ackroyd and orient express they make so many off-putting choices to books that are like tried and true some of the best books written especially in the crime genre (laughs) like undeniably it's like you know uh, like why would you make those choices but like with this one i mean there was just no reason then you just got you got a little kid with a dinosaur in each hand banging them together going (gasps) exactly (laughs) yeah bad but good book uh oh yeah let's get to uh rating it we got to we don't want to but we have to (laughs) now Uh, initially just not given too much thought what would you give this out of five i almost gave it a four and then the more i thought about it i was like no there are some things that it doesn't i don't think it really has earned the merit of being in the company of the ones that we have as fours so i'm i'm toying with (laughs) 3.5 what about you i honestly gave it four and a half like i've got oh wow (laughs) i've got problems with it but they're minor enough and i just i it's one that I would gladly reread all the time. So I would give it four and a half, but we can we can have it at four, I guess, which is not exactly what you wanted. But we can go over the fours <laughs> and see what is it better than in the fours. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here are our fours. <laughs> Usually our, our stuff is closer together, but. Yeah, I, I was surprised at the gap, but yeah, I, I think my issues with it are, are more minor. Um. Here are our four stars uh, from bottom to top. Three-act tragedy, murder is easy, Hercule Poirot's Christmas, The Hollow, Evil Under the Sun, and Death Comes as the End. Which of those would you say is better than? I think it's better than Hercule Poirot's Christmas. I agree. And I think that's, that's a fair comparison because it's, dysfunctional family it's a patriarch and that one even though it had a very interesting structure and it was twisty this one takes the cake for for twisty if there is a cake to be had for twisting it takes it (laughs) but that being said you have to like it more than the one that's above it which is the hollow i do personally i doubt that you do no i do i like this one better than the hollow okay then i definitely agree with that and then what was the one right above that uh, evil under the sun oh yeah that one's tough mm. for me but i think i might put it above evil under the sun but i love evil under the sun but sometimes it gets a little too black and Just, white for me it, but, and it, it it is something that uh, an idea that she had rehashed 
yeah. that she does multiple times. For sheer originality, this one it would be above that. Um, I completely agree. The one that I would hesitate to put it above is Death Comes as the End, just because of how much of a thrill ride that read is. Even though I don't necessarily think it's as tight, like, plot-wise, because the twist in Death Comes as the End is kind of feels like an afterthought. It's just such a such a readable book that I would like read it again every day. It's and it's so hard. It's really, really take a moment to think that you're comparing these two books. I so different. You would never in any yeah, in any universe you would never compare these two books besides the fact that they're written by the same author, which is pretty right. cool. But yeah, well, I think it should sit comfortably underneath Death Comes as the end. <laughs> okay. I'm I think that's great. So <laughs> Yeah, so then it will be comfortable at number 15 of 40 books that we've read. That's really respectable. Yeah, I mean, especially for Christy. Uh, but the fact that she's oh. written this many good books. There was one other thing I wanted to say. It's it's not important, but it's important to me. Um, <laughs> I, I wish that this had been ken brana's choice i hope that he does do this because i think he could well he gets a little he gets a little 12 year old boy sometimes too like he has that mentality of like oh, it's gonna be grand but um <laughs> i want to see because the physicality of characters is sometimes really important and the way that she described david hunter was nothing like the dude who played him in the Suchet, which is okay. Like I said, he did a fairly good job until like he, he was a bond villain which is a very good uh assessment by the way I would love to, the way he's described in the book, the only person who could ever play him is Tom Hiddleston. And I want that, would be very that good. to happen. That would be very good. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing? And that is a, he, that is a straight has, line there for Bronna, I think. <laughs> he has, the, I mean, he has that. Uh, yeah, so that's perfect because it it's, he's such an interesting character in that you, you know, you have to hate him. Like, mm -hmm. but there's also so much intrigue to him and he has that ability to turn charm off and on. And I think as a performer, Tom Hiddleston would just like nail that. Yeah. And I was, I was already thinking because when they had, they had not yet announced what the book was that he was doing for the third film, but they had said it was post-war immediately i was like this is christie's post-war book like she has made right. that are, obviously half of the canon is technically post-war but <laughs> this is the most thematically post-war and i can see it being moved to venice obviously so that's why i initially thought yeah. that um and if he had like trimmed the cast a little bit take away a few aunts and spice <laughs> it up a little bit i think it would have been pretty good um hollywood wise and I think he would have done a good job as well as the, the screenwriter, because of course we're going to get to it. I'm not going to talk about it a lot now, but I think he did a good job with post-war vibes uh, uh -huh. when he took that on as that's what the next one is going to be. And so I think he, it would have been a good, because <clears throat> I think he's borrowing some from this book, whether or not they know, because I know they read them all when they yeah. wrote the scripts. And I, I feel like a lot of this came into the screenplay for Haunting in Venice, which we will talk about, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Matthew Pritchard said that uh, her, her grandson said he was totally okay that Brana had his permission to do all 30 Poirot books. <laughs> Get ready for Kenneth Brana's The Big Four. <laughs> Kenneth Brana's Elephants Can Remember. Um. <laughs> Yeah, next on that episode, which will probably be next because we have finally seen it. We haven't talked about it like hardly at all since we did our prediction 
episode. I kind of like that we went radio silent and now we'll get to finally talk about it. We haven't really talked about it much with each other, even though everybody needs to know this, that we, we did not, we have not talked about it. (laughs) Um, But I want to talk about like the future of Christy on screen. Like not only what would we want to see Bronner do if he does it anymore, but like, what are some other direct, like something you could think about? What are some other directors we'd like to see? What are some books that they'd like, that we'd like to see them do? Cause I've been giving that some thought and I've been thinking like, you know, obviously I, I really like Brana's take, but like, oh, what would this person do with a Poirot or something like that? I want to see Guy Ritchie direct the ABC Wait, murders. You getting way ahead. I think you've said that before, but you got to say. I'm sorry. I think I have to. You got to save this for our, the the next episode when we talk about. Okay. That's going to be our big <laughs> movie bash episode, which is I love when we talk about just a movie. I love those episodes, but uh, that's when we could talk about 2023 in cinema completely yes <laughs> because there's just too much we're talking venice we're talking turismo we're talking the trench we're talking barbie <laughs> the big four <laughs> well this I'm was a, it was a that. good book and if people yes. aren't like put off by knowing all of the twists i think i, I think <laughs> they could still read it and get everything out of it out. yeah the next book that we're going to talk about, obviously, I said the next the next episode will probably be Haunting of Venice, but the next book that we're going to talk about should be The Rose and the Yew Tree, a Mary Westmacott that I don't think either of us have read. Oh, never. So that should be pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. as we usually do with the Westmacotts, because I can never find them, you'll read it first and then I'll borrow it. <laughs> I think I have two of them this time, so I think I bought two knowing oh. that would happen, yeah. I'm looking behind you on the yeah. wall of Christie, but I don't see any Westmacott's face out. There are no Westmacott's face out because I have no Westmacott first editions. I love some. Oh, I see. <laughs> yep. First editions are face out, but th- there is uh, one right up there. It's, <laughs> it's spine out, but yeah. The only, no, it's, yeah, it's only Christie's face out right now. Okay. If I find a, <laughs> if I find a, I did find a Agatha Christie Mallowin first edition um i have not bought it yet but i know what store it's at and it has not moved and it's been there a long time and i've been thinking about buying it <laughs> you live um i've been thinking about buying it and i think i just need to jump for it. it's not that much money but that's been my latest quest and i'm gonna start posting a little bit about it on the instagram so people are gonna start hearing about it but uh, my quest <laughs> has been to find all the first editions that i can find it's it's very pretty it's a very pretty wall and i it's think pretty, that um it's noble too I feel like it should be like, you know, people who have those vaults for like first edition comic books and stuff yes, that are like really like that. expensive and like there's a fire prevention methods and, and stuff. I feel like that you're sitting in, in one of those right now. And it looks like you're just sitting in your living room, but you're in, yeah, you're in a, what is it? Hurts something sealed safe. <laughs> like, like the Disney vault. Like I'm going to release third yeah. girl from the Disney vault. <laughs> so if any, if any of our listeners, like they discover in the wild, a Christie first edition, like, let me know where it is. Cause I'm tracking <laughs> them down. Hunting. Nice. Call me David Hunter. Cause I'm hunting them and I'm about, I'm going to go get my hands on some dynamite. Um, probably going to push an old lady into a stream and uh find some kittens to kill uh thank you for listening and 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 then uh take over the moon yeah uh david hunter probably 
had the minions supporting him at one time because as we know they always have supported the <laughs> most evil people in the world yes. grew napoleon david hunter <laughs> i want i want a, a a digital cut of david hunter being followed around by minions everywhere he goes yeah that's take out the flood extended um <laughs> please follow us on instagram you'll get to see all sorts of books from the ddtt collection but you'll also get to hear about our new episodes and see some cool images before our next episode about haunting of venice about our movie going experiences um Woo-hoo! also visit our website visit our merch store hopefully we'll get to getting <laughs> some new stuff and always make sure that you leave us a review especially on spotify right now because that's where we mainly get our listens but give us or you can't leave us a review but give us a rating on spotify five stars oh, please. Yes, don't please. be stingy don't be stingy like charlotte <laughs> well, i'm feeling stars. like it's a 3.9 give us any three and a half get five stars i think you can you can go give us a review at itunes um recently we had somebody leave us uh fee- you can leave us feedback on each individual episode on spotify now and somebody told us uh that they really liked our episode on death comes as the end because it was their favorite book of all time so they thought that we handled it Ooh. well so i thought that was cool um, that's awesome so i'm hoping if taken at the flood is your favorite book of all time that we did it justice. <laughs> yes and we'll talk to you next time please i never know how to close these without zach here he'll be back he might be back <laughs> now we don't know oh zach make your tea bye <laughs>